0: So thankful for this girl sharing that sweet song and that hopefully is the cry of our hearts that we do want to know him more, that we want to surrender. Today we're gonna turn our attention in God's word to Psalm 61. So if you have a Bible, I'm gonna ask you to open it with me to Psalm 61. It is a very brief Psalm having only eight verses to it. But I want us to consider this together. Psalm 61. You may listen as I read God's word, then we will pray and begin to really dig in together. Begins with this introduction. It says to the choir master with stringed instruments of David. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever, and let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So, I will ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. Let's pray. God, we look to you at so many times in our lives, but when we come to hear your word, we do need a special enablement. We ask that your spirit would give us attentiveness with all the various things that are going on in our lives, in our days, all of our practical plans, all of the uh, challenges and difficulties. God, help us to, in this time, give our attention to your word. Further, Lord, I ask that you would enable me to communicate the things of this passage in a way that is clear And understandable to those who have gathered here. And that you by your spirit would illumine their minds and give understanding. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you for these timeless truths that have so much power and necessity in our lives. Teach us, speak to us this morning through your word we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. We have been... uh, Most significantly over the past few weeks, uh, looking at different psalms, and this morning we are looking at at this psalm. Now when we take it up, the challenge we may face with this psalm is Paul, uh, or David is writing this psalm at a time of great difficulty, a time of, of great stress, a time where he's tremendously overwhelmed. That might not be exactly where you are right now, and that's okay. Because I'll guarantee you this someone else is probably someone you know and maybe you can come alongside of them and encourage them with the things we hear today further than that I could possibly go so far as to prophesy that there will be a time in your life in the days to come that you're going to feel overwhelmed that you're going to feel faint that you're going to feel desperate. And this psalm speaks to those occasions, and it, it holds out for us great guidance and great encouragement and comfort. This psalm, to the best of our knowledge, it's speculation to a certain degree by the scholars. So I'm setting this out. This is speculation, which is different than when we say, thus says the Lord, and this is the word of God. Speculation holds little weight. Word of God holds absolute weight but the speculation is only trying to sense the circumstances that were going on when David wrote of this despair. Okay, and so the best effort of, the, of scholars really throughout history, even going into the days of the Old Testament and people looking back, it is most likely, most likely is not a guarantee, it is most likely that David wrote this During the time that he was fleeing from his throne, running from his own son Absalom, who had established himself as the king in place of his father. Now, when you, when you trace out all of those details, now those who are on the McShane reading, as some of us in the church here are, we've been reading through 2 Samuel and seeing those events unfold. David having had multiple sons and daughters, and, and among those sons that he had, there was one son named Amnon. And then there was also on this side, Absalom. Absalom was, as you you would see from this passage, or from the sections in 1 Samuel, or 2 Samuel, one of the most handsome men of his era. The scriptures indicate that he was just an absolute serious looker. Nobody could compare with him in the category of looks. That's what the scripture says of him. Kind of so, the same thing with his sister, Tamar. And the half-brother, which they did that in those days, so I'm as uncomfortable as you, but the half-brother, Amnon, wanted the sister. And through a complex of events where he pretended to be sick and requested that she come and give him food, the half-brother mistreated and violated his half-sister. And so she went back after that devastated, and and she really, the scripture says, she lived the, the rest of her time, she lived like a desperate woman, she lived like a widow. That's it, she was done. And this is something that Absalom hated Amnon from that point on, and he was biding his time. Now, this became known what was done, and I might dare jump in and say, David, do something. I mean, King David, now again, if you look at the flow of events, this is already, David has made his own errors into the Bathsheba and Uriah situation of his own moral compromises. And so here is one, he lets it go. Absalom seems to let it go, but actually not, because two years later, he's going to call a special feast of all his brothers. And when the brothers come together, he's going to grab hold of Absalom, send the rest of them away, and finish him off. And so then, once Abnon kills his brother, then he ends up having to flee. And when you look at what, what events have happened, he waited two years after his sister was mistreated to then kill him. Then he runs away, and he's run away in a place called Gesher for three years before David says, okay, come back to Jerusalem. When he comes back to Jerusalem, he's allowed to come back to Jerusalem, but he's somewhat still estranged from his father. So two more years pass before he even comes before his father. Now, you can imagine, and I, and I want to practically think about this, because it's likely you are as imperfect as me. And it's likely that we are all as imperfect as Absalom. And so uh, it's easier for us to look back and say, Absalom, what a horrible, wicked jerk and what a terrible son that he would seek to dethrone his father. But for just a moment, it can be helpful to try to put yourself in that situation. Why did dad not deal with this issue? Why did my, is my sister continuing to suffer like this? Why, why am I ending up estranged for taking the vengeance that would have rightfully been mine, that really father should have done? And, now, and so you've got two years, five years, seven years that have passed before he even comes face to face with his father. Seven years of wrong. Have you ever known somebody to develop a little bitty bit of resentment in their lives most people I know it does not take seven years to build up some serious bitterness and resentment we may be more efficient at bitterness and resentment than was Absalom but hopefully our expression of it will be very different as well and maybe God would help us to deal with that uh, even then once he's called back he begins Absalom begins a four-year plan to win the hearts of the people to himself and away from his father so this is a man who when he sets an agenda however vindictive however self-serving he's, he's playing the long game and he rides it out. And during almost all of this, it seems David is spectacularly oblivious to the fact that his son is opposed to him. People are coming to seek the counsel of David, but Solomon, but Absalom is there at the gate. Don't bother him. Tell me what your issue is and I'll settle it for you. And he's dealing, he's garnering, he's influencing. And by this time, finally comes around, he decides, that's it. I'm going to be king. David is told, Absalom is coming for you. He's been declared king. He gets on his most likely mule and hits the road. And he is, he is out. A crew of people go out with him. And he is now away from Jerusalem. He's he's away from the the tabernacle. Remember, under David, they had brought the ark of the covenant, so that which represented the presence of God and that tabernacle uh, was in that place where all of the worship and where the primary sacrifices were going on. So now David is distanced, he's separated, and he's estranged. He's sinned himself, as we know, and borne some guilt from that. He has he has come under the circumstances where sons are killing sons sons are violating daughters sons are rebelling against and usurping the throne from father these are dark dark days i mean the the, the, it's unlikely these exact circumstances will ever come to you and me but it, it, it paints a picture of severe struggles and it's into this context it seems that David comes and he writes this particular psalm now this is also a unique psalm in the introduction and I'll tell you why it's a unique psalm in the introduction it says to the choir master for the stringed instruments of David now that doesn't seem all that unique because there are a couple other of them that are to the for stringed instruments Now, for those using the King James, yours will not say stringed instruments. Yours is going to say, on the Neganoth, which is just fun to say. On the Neganoth. But that's just not translating the word, which means on the stringed instruments. But this psalm, of the ones that were written to be sung, all the psalms were written to be sung to musical accompaniment. All right? None of them were designed per se for an acapella group. They were, they were really, David was a musician first and a songwriter second. When he would come in for Saul, it was not often to sing a little ditty. It was more frequently to play some sweet music that would soothe him in his moments of anxiety. There's many times that David even says, you know, Pluck the psalms, play the stringed instruments to the Lord. Now this one, unlike the other psalms, there are a number of them, about seven, that are written for the stringed instruments. This one, the ESV has also gotten it wrong. So Neganoth in the King James doesn't tell you what's really going on. The ESV copies the other ones and says stringed instruments. Literally, this one is on a stringed instrument singular this is the only one that is singular so this is where this is different than some of some of the other psalms this one is dialed way down this is stripped back this is this is more what what some might consider more of an unplugged version there is just one instrument and the design of this is much more personal because some of them were were big in their extent bring in the orchestra bring in the the harp and the lyre bring in uh, the cymbals and, and and you're building the base this particular one what's no you're taking that one stringed instrument and you're playing it. So this psalm was not necessarily the kind of psalm that maybe we might think of this as the psalm that if there was congregational singing, this would be a psalm that in the midst of it, the the choir or the congregation would fall back and the other instruments would fall back and one stringed instrument and one voice, lonely and somber, would set forth this tune. You know, because I, when you read it, you can't always convey. You know, it's, the introduction conveys a tone, a mood, and emotion to this psalm that I'm that I want us to get a sense of, and that really comes across in this. The first thing that I want us to note about this psalm is that it is personal and pleading. It is his own personal. Cry to God in his present circumstances, and he is pleading before him. When I say it's personal, you can see it very clearly in this psalm itself. He says, Hear my cry. Unlike what could be on other occasions, hear our cry, attend to our voice. No, no, no. This one is, Hear my cry. This is oftentimes, and this can happen. Where we're in such a circumstance, we might even go so far as to think this, nobody else quite identifies with it. You know, there are things that others can identify, they can understand, and and we can commiserate over our, our shared misery. But then there are some things that I feel take me lower than I can communicate. And sometimes we also feel You can't, nobody can understand what I'm going through. Now that's actually not true. But we all tend individually to think that. And as much as you feel and think that at times, so does this person and so does this person and that. And the New Testament wonderfully reminds us that there's no tribulation or temptation. There's nothing that comes upon us that's not common to man. And even more so, if we give ourselves to the earnest reading of scriptures. I, when I give myself to a more detailed contemplation of what was going on even with David at this time, what his sons were doing, what had been done to his daughters, and then uh, what, what he himself had done. I think, okay, yeah, that was dark. That was heavy. Sometimes we get the blinders on, and this is kind of what's going on with David. There's a little bit of blinders going on there. He can identify with those depths that we sometimes feel. He says, um, my, hear my cry, listen to my prayer from the end of the earth. I will call to you when my heart is faint. So my, my, I, personal. Right? Those are very strong personal pronouns. And we also see that it's, it, not only is this very personal, it is very pleading. He's, at, he's telling God, to twice he's urging God to hear. Hear my cry. Listen to my prayer. Now, now we've, let me work on explaining this just a little bit. Now, this is stated in the imperative. Now, that's, which usually we consider the, the, a command. Something's in the imperative. It's a command. So, is David commanding God? You better listen up. Is he doing that? No. See, that's why we've got to be a little bit more uh, detailed. A little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Right? The little knowledge says, uh, uh, imperatives are commands. Blah. Yeah, imperatives are often commands, but not always. Sometimes they are an expression, particularly in the phrasing of, God, you must listen to me. You must hear what I'm saying. It is a must of desperate cry, hence the words here, cry. So the context plays it out. So it's not commanding, but it is an urging. I must have your ear. I must have you listen. I I I'm sharing this, but I can't just say it. I need you to attend to it, God. Do you ever that that sense of urgency, that, that that entreaty is there? And what also I want us to see lovely about this is look what it. In this personal pleading it is my cry my prayer i cry but it is also this hear my cry o oh god he again from the end of the earth i call to you it is very specific It's not just a random cry. Help me. Help me who can help me somebody listen Anybody listen can anybody hear me? I mean there's circumstances we can imagine that in right? This isn't that this is everybody else plug your ears There's only one that I need to hear this There's only one that can help. There's only one that can save God to you My cry comes to you. There's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to look. There's no one else to help. It's not a random cry. It's personal and it's pleading and it's directed to God himself and no one else. This is the kind of song that David would sing without even an audience. Everyone out. Close the doors. I need to sing. Sing out to my God. Cry out to him. This wasn't a necessary performance. This is a plea. God help. God intervene. God I need you. So it is personal. And pleading. Um, The second thing that we see within this. Is. uh, Phrase it this way. it, It expresses. A sense of being distant and desperate. So it's personal and pleading. It is distant and desperate. Distant comes in this phrase here. From the end of the earth, I call to you. All right. Hence the idea of distant. If someone is near, then they would say from next door. If someone says, I'm calling from the ends of the earth. Does that sound like they're close by? No. Now, practically speaking, was David literally at the ends of the earth? No, he wasn't. But he was far from Jerusalem where the established worshipful presence of God was there with the ark. But here's what's lovely about this. As he is far away and he senses... That far away, he senses that distance to the extreme. The the biggest terminology that could be mustered to express how distant he feels is the end of the earth. There's no further because that's the end, exactly. So all the way from the ends of the earth. Now, here's the beautiful thing. If someone is standing there on the end of the earth, or they're far away, and they're calling to someone in Jerusalem, or to someone on a high mountain, is it going to be heard? Yeah. So for him to call out to Absalom from the ends of the earth, how useful is that? not it can't be heard now you've got to give up all your notions of technology right now remember the era into which this written call is not a reference to phones or cell phones or any other technology the call is just that pleading voice from out of the gut out of the throat into the air No other call. But here's the beauty. No matter how distant you may feel. No matter how distant you may be. The depth of desperation. You know what you can do? Call out to God. But what if he's too far? That he can't hear me? Ah, we can ask that question about every natural human being. But we're not calling a human. This is not a call for some assistance. This is a call to God. And you could not only be in, at the end of the earth, uh, this, uh, when he says, when my heart is overwhelmed, the King James says, The ESV says, when my heart is faint. Some older versions in wrestle, uh, or older lexical studies in wrestling with this terminology says there's a sense in which this represents uh, being covered in darkness. The idea, this, this idea of fainting is actually mentioned by Jonah over in Jonah chapter 2 verse 7. He says, Jonah 2 verse 1 says this, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of of a fish. Right. That seems even a little more distant than the ends of the earth. And the ends of the earth is. Bah. But now where is Jonah? In a belly. In the depths of the water. And he says this in verse 7. When my life was fainting away. That same word. When my. That we, that we have in chapter 61. Verse 2. When my heart is faint. Now in Jonah, we get a clearer sense of what that, my heart is fainting away. What did Jonah think was happening? If you read, read up before it, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. So what was the sense? I'm dead. There is no coming back from this. Ah. Oh. Well, that, that's that sense. When So when David says, when my heart was faint, a uh, heart was overwhelmed, it, it, it's a strong idea. It is, it is that sense that I was flagging to the point of exhaustion. What you're to see and envision is someone who has pushed themselves beyond the limits of physical exertion. They're in desperate need of water. They're in desperate need of something to survive. That's it. They can't get any further, it's over. They're out. He's like, wow. He said, but he's saying, not physical. This is happening inside of me. As Paul would say, crushed, despairing of life itself. I just don't think I can go on. I don't think I'm going to make it through this. It's just, no, I never thought I'd have to face this. It's just, no. God, you know I can't. You know it's too much. That's the the sense of how he's feeling there. So desperate. And into that, he cries out to God, when my heart is overwhelmed from the end of the earth, in this, what does he say? Look at what it says with me in chapter 6, verse 2, the second half. When my heart is overwhelmed, when my heart is faint, when it is covered in darkness, when it's feeble at the end, exhausted, what do I cry? Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Yeah, this, this, is, uh, uh, this is extraordinary in the, in the phrasing and in the concept here. Because here uh, he, he's not simply asking... For a lightning bolt that fixes everything he's not asking for a simple touch of the reset button he's saying lead me to the rock that's higher than I there's going to be a process there is this sense in which God has the answer God though I have no more strength, God is able nonetheless to give me more strength. though I don't have an answer, though I don't have a solution, I can look to him, He can lead me, He can help me through these things, there is a way. Lead me the, what I like about this is also that in this this sense of of lead me it, it, it it's a strong notion. it speaks of most literally, conducting one along a path. All right? So it's, don't let me keep going my way. Don't let me keep deciding my solutions. Don't let me trust in my own wisdom. Don't let me follow my own heart. This is what I want. You lead me. (laughs) And so Conduct me along that path now if I start going off that path. What happens? This is a term that that You might not like this, but it is what it is (laughs) This is a term that that would be even used for the idea of hurting Now I know we don't like to think of ourselves in animal metaphors but the idea would be hurting and you're trying to get Those animals to go along a certain path. And I know we're not as experienced with that sometimes here. But I'll tell you this. There are often times even now when I'm back in India. And I'm driving down the road. And I'm wanting that shepherd to take care of that massive herd of goats. Because I want to drive. Or maybe it is a group of water buffaloes. Which are even harder to get their attention. And they're right there on the road. And there's no way to get past them. You know, and so you indicate with gentle love on the horn your desire to pass. And the shepherd then gets that message and he conducts them along the path that they should go as they've been spreading out broader in a way that's walking. And sometimes for some of them, he just can take a stick out and and tap it gently on the side and they just come on over. I will tell you, more often than not, with the water buffalo, the gentle tap does not get his attention, and so it becomes a little more aggressive than that. <laughs> it becomes more, uh, more of a swat or a whack, to use the technical terms, right? It, it becomes a little bit more aggressive. Now, the, here's the idea, the psalmist is, is really calling to God, lead me there, That's where I know I'm supposed to be, to the rock that is higher than I, that you and I know is an extraordinary reference that finds its fullest revelation in the person of Christ. Lead me to that rock. And so if I'm not going on his way, and if I'm not going on the way that leads to him... By using this particular term, it's not simply get me there. It's not simply transport me there, but it's conduct me there. It's a call to, to, if I start to go off, a gentle tap would be fine. If I continue to go, I'll take a whacking. Whatever's necessary, lead me. To that rock that is higher than I. Keep me. Conduct me on that path. That's where I want to go. I love that. Now. Uh, now most of us don't necessarily love that. But what, uh, what I love about that is. It, this is one of the reasons why David was a man after God's own heart. Because what he was saying. To please him. And to head his way. Is more important than my ease. My comfort. My body my circumstances God's way and God's will is more valuable and so now here's the simple thing about that the person who is ready to make that cry lead me conduct me keep me on that path is one who himself is committed to being on that path right the person who is kind of thinking how much wandering can I get away with I mean, how far off the path can I go, and still be, you know, still avoid the whacking? You know how far the person who's wondering how far I can go, how how much I can test the limits? Yeah, that's that's just the wrong spirit altogether, and that's not what's going on here. And so we see, he says, "Lead me to the rock that is higher than I." We're going to see about that idea of rock in just a moment, and it says. Uh, the, and the idea of the rock for verse 3 for you have been my refuge and strong tower from the enemy let me dwell in your tent forever let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings um, King James there says trust in the covert of thy wings but th- it's not trust it is literally take refuge in you have been David has had the experience this is where I go This is where I go, and I've come to you in the past, and you've comforted. I've come to you in the past, and you've strengthened. I've come to you in the past, and you've delivered. That's where I want to dwell. I want to dwell with you. I want to dwell in that refuge. And the term he uses is strong tower. Some of this terminology we don't know, though I think presently there are There's the reviving of various apps of war that people build towers and build battlements and things. So maybe it's not such a distant example anymore. But a strong tower was simply such, you go up in the strong tower and you know what? You're safe. They can't touch you. You were basically absolutely untouchable until in those days, until you had to come down to meet a particular need of food and water. And the good strong towers were well-prepared and well-fortified that you could be there for a good season. It was strong towers in which even mighty armies and great military men at the base of a strong tower might find a young lady able to vanquish a great warrior by simply dropping a millstone on his head. So how did she defeat him? Well, it wasn't her strength, but from that position, she was in a position of, of safety. She was in a, a position of superiority. Even now, when we talk, talk about battles, we talk about being on the high ground. He who's on the high ground is in a way better position in a battle than the person on the low ground. Now, the terminology here, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, it has that even concept of a cliff. So, put me at the top of a cliff and put my enemy as the guy who's climbing and scaling up the side of the cliff to attack me. Now on level ground, depending on who he is, maybe he could take me. I'm going to say this, and I hope it doesn't seem too boasty. You could take some guy who maybe just won an international strongman competition. And if he is scaling up a cliff to get me, and I'm standing at the top of the cliff, I think I can take him. Because the hand grips the top of the cliff, and I give a little, a little, and it's pretty easy. And what happens to him? Yeah, stop thinking about what happens to him. I win is what basically, and was it because of my strength? Or my superiority? No, I didn't do anything impressive. I could even even, you know, called a little child over there to do that one for me. It, the, it was because of the position, because of the place that I was in. That's the picture that this is giving. Trying to want to make this as vivid as possible for us. So it is lead me to this place, guard me for your name's sake. Because look at what he says here as we come to verse five. We see verse 5, he takes up what I would call promises and possession. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Two things in there here. Promises have been made by David. Now, sometimes in those days they would barter. You know, if you will do this for me. Then I will go into the house of the Lord. Then I will tell of your praises. Then I will do all of these things. Well, generally speaking, what's, what's interesting, and what David often does in these, he will set forth vows, and the vows are his commitments, his self-obligating to do certain things for God, and that's what he's going to do. Whether he's on the path, whether the enemy's attacking him, Whether he's delivered. See, these are not, this is not stated as conditional vows. This is, I have made vows to you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to walk in your way. Yeah, well, what if your son turns against you? Well, I'm still going to walk. Well, what if you lose your throne? I'm I'm, I'm still going to seek you and serve you. My vows are my vows. My promises are my promises. My commitment to you is my commitment. It can't change. Based on whether I like what's going on. I'm still committed to those things. That I've committed myself to. And then he goes on to say. Interesting. You have given me. The heritage. Of those who fear your name. Here he speaks of what he possesses. An inheritance. But he notes this. You have given me. The heritage of those. Who fear your name. You know what he didn't say? I earned it. I have earned, I have deserved. I have worked for, I have proven myself worthy. Did he say any of that? No, he says, you have given me the heritage of those that fear your name. Now, some might say, well, what he gave was fearing the name. And so, because he feared the name, He got the heritage. Well, interesting that you should say that. Because. Jeremiah chapter 32. Verse 40. Prophesies. Thusly. Yes. I will make. And this is God speaking of his own power. And his own work. Particularly even a new covenant work. I will make with them an everlasting covenant. I will not turn away from doing them good. And I will will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. So could, can we even boast, I fear the Lord, therefore you owe me something. No, because if we really fear him, we might step back for a moment and say, Oh, I respect, revere, honor, and serve God because he's put that in my heart. Ah, it's not something I'm giving to him, so now you give me a little something, something. No, it is, you put that in my heart, I fear you because of your work, and you're going to give me inheritance? My goodness, it's all coming from you. Yeah, how glorious is that? And so he knows, he has been given... Not rewarded, but given that inheritance of those that fear the name because he's been given the fear as they've been given the fear. And so it is all of God. It is all of grace. And so where's the place for man's boasting? It's gone. So that we now boast what? In the Lord alone. What a glorious possession. Now we move on in this verse 6 and 7. We'll tie us back to the rock in a moment to what I would call types and truth. Typology is a complicating, complicated study in scripture where the scripture will, will use uh, pictures, we use metaphors, we'll use examples, and we have certain sacrifices that point forward to the sacrifice of Christ and speak of the needs of men. We have certain experiences of God providing water out of a rock. That, that speak and have metaphoric or more spiritual significance and a greater fulfillment in the days to come. This passage is also filled with those kinds of types because do listen as I read this verse and I think you'll see it for yourself. Often the spirit who is the one who carries the writers along leads them to say things that go beyond the ordinary, beyond the practical, beyond the realistic. And when it goes beyond the ordinary, practical and realistic, we scratch our heads and say, what's going on there? And then hopefully we study the scriptures enough to say, aha, I see what's going on there. Or I'll be happy to help you. It says this in verse six and seven, prolong the life of the king. At this point, who's the king? David's the king. I mean, he's a, he's a running king, but he's the king. Now, prolong the life of the king. That seems a little uh, self-serving. Yeah, but look what goes on. May his years endure to all generations. Now, just out of curiosity, how long is David expecting to live when he says prolong the life of the king? You know, we've all heard long live the king, long live the king, long live the queen, whatever those sayings go. But even then, when someone says long, what are they thinking? You know, they're not shouting, thousand years live the king. They're they're expecting a a reasonable duration. Here it says, enduring to how many generations? Oh, just all of them. (laughs) Now, is David going to endure to all generations? He personally? No, but God is going to set someone on the throne of David, a son of David, a king Who will be what? A king forever. And of his generations and of his governorship and of his rule, there will be no end, is what it tells us in the book of Isaiah. No end. And who was set on that throne? Jesus. Hebrews says he has taken up the priesthood, he has taken up the kingship, and he has done this on the basis of an eternal life. A life without end. So this reference here, though there is prolong the life of the king, this is not. This is taking us beyond simply looking back and seeing David's desperation, and it's pointing us forward to. Because remember, the New Testament tells us all the time those things that were written down beforehand, they were written down for us, on whom the end of the ages have fallen. So if we read this and say, well, this is for David, and so this is what he was going through, the end. We've missed it, because this is written down for who? Yeah, for us, on whom the end of the ages have fallen. So that when we say, together with this song, prolong the life of the king. Who's this king? No, and see, that was before. We get to look back where we're at. and We're saying, the life of the king of kings and lord of lords, he who was raised from the dead and proclaimed to be the son of God with power, to whom God has given all authority and right to reign, will his life be prolonged? Uh, His life was taken, but he was resurrected. To life without end. And those who by faith are joined to him. What do we have? Eternal life. and That there's a real sense in which. A spiritual sense in which. We will never die. Prolong the life of the king. What's amazing is this. United to him. The eternal king. Our lives are extraordinarily. Endlessly prolonged. So that this this picture becomes uh, tremendous to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Do you see how this is pointing forward? Who is the fulfillment of these things that are being pleaded for here? It's the rock. Establish Christ. Establish your son. Establish him as king. Establish that rock that we can run to. May he be immovable. May he be eternal. May he be to the ends of the earth. May he be over all generations. Establish him. And what did God indeed do? He established him. In Luke chapter 1 verse 32 it says this. Of the coming son Jesus. He will be great. And will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So when we talk about running to the rock that is higher, it's not figurative. The rock that we must run to is Jesus Christ. He is our refuge. He is our fortress. It is to be found in him. It is the the one that we want to be conducted to. And the way in which we want to be conducted and guided. Is in the way of Christ. And no other way. So much so that, uh, that that I might. I might spiritually paraphrase this. To say something along these lines. The lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Would be show me the way to Christ. Show me the way of Christ. Bring me to Him along the way that you brought Him. Or may I find peace and comfort and solace and protection in Him. And remember, in Him, the enemy cannot separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can the enemy and is yet time permitted to bring swords? Yeah. But can a sword separate me from the love of God? Can he sometimes, is he permitted to bring famine? Pestilence? All manner of problems. Yes. But no matter what arises, nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. And also, at no point do I have to think because of the miseries that presently afflict me, that I'm somehow apart from the love of God, because my misery does not match the misery of my majestic savior. And was he ever outside of the love of his father? No. It was in love the father sent his son. It was in love the son gave himself for us. And it is in love that we will by grace joyfully bear whatever trials come our way. Knowing that there is strength. There is hope. There is refuge in Christ that the enemy can't touch me. All you can do is touch my body. All you can do is touch the things of this world. But all that's passing away anyways. The things that are eternal, you can't touch it. You know, it's almost as if, you know, you imagine, and you've probably seen it on occasion, there's a kid, smallest kid in the class, and then there's a bully. Does that happen? And maybe the bully snatches the hat off the little kid's head and begins to hold it up, right? And what does that little guy do? And you, you see it, and he's leaping, and he's flinging, he's trying to get his hat back. But what happens? He can't get it. And so, and, and the taunt comes. You can't, you can't, you can't, and and it's just demoralizing, isn't it? And, And he can't do anything. But listen, that taunt is not to us. With regard to our peace and our joy that is in Christ Jesus, in all honesty, little devil, you can't touch it. You can't touch it. He's got nothing. He's the one who's feeble. He's the one who's powerless. In all of this, though the enemy may be trying to bully us, he's actually the guy who can't get it done. Because we're in the hands of God. We're in the strong tower. We are out of his reach by the grace of God. And so as a result of that, this whole chapter comes to an end with these ideas of praise and perform. It says this in verse 12. Uh, Or or no, verse 8. So I will ever sing praises to your name. So he's going to sing praises to his name when? Now and when? And and when? Yeah. Ever kind of means without end. Ongoing. Well, will you still sing praises when the problems are there? Uh Uh-huh. Will you sing praises when the problems are gone? Uh Uh-huh. Will you sing praises in the high, the low, the good, the bad, the medium? Yeah, I'm going to always sing praises. Because his glory, his greatness, his unsearchable riches and promises, they don't change when all these things are changing. And further, not only will I sing praises to him, but what? To your name as I what? Perform my vows day after day. I'm not two things I'm going to keep doing praising and performing I'm going to do what you would have me do what you what is pleasing to you what I've committed myself by grace to be involved with and I'm going to do it while praising you obey worship obey worship follow love honor all of it and so a simple overview in conclusion this chapter begins with this this sense of personal pleading one man one instrument pouring out his heart to god pleading that god would listen this pleading comes in a a season and a time a moment where he is feeling distant and desperate He calls out to God in that circumstance and he asks God to be his guide and his guard to lead him to the rock that's higher than I. In that, we see that he follows that with with a recognition of promises and possession. That he has a responsibility and obligation and he has committed himself to live for God and there is a possession that he's going to inherit but he recognizes those possessions Aren't because of his promises. Those promises are going to be be there. Because God is worthy of those. He is going to receive the the, uh, possession. Because God's worthiness. I praise because God is worthy. I perform because God is worthy. He gives me a possession. Though I am unworthy. Isn't that Glorious. And then we see the types and the truth in there. Where Christ is that rock that is higher than I. Even as Christ was the rock that followed the children of Israel in the wilderness. Even as Christ was established as the cornerstone and rock of the church. Even to some a rock of stumbling and a rock of offense. But Christ is that one unmovable sure stone and foundation. And we don't want him to move. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Listen. We don't serve... A Jesus of this generation. We serve the Christ Jesus. The Son of God. The Son of God who existed before the foundation of the world with the Father. The Son of God who in magnificent ways manifest Himself in theophanies throughout the history of the Old Testament. Who came in the form of a man who ascend, died and ascended on high. The unchangeable eternal Son of God. He is the one that we come to. And listen, by grace, He receives us. And so we see those types and that truth. And then hopefully I pray that God would stir us up to be a people who follow that. And in that consideration and say that's by the grace of God that's going to be me. Praise and perform. That's what, I, that's what I'm going to do. His praises will ever be on my lips. And to perform what is pleasing to him will ever be my action and undertaking. For his glory. Let's pray. Lord oh your word is great we thank you that it is always relevant and powerful there is never a moment at which it is it is some distant uh, enigma that we can't figure out you've given us your word to guide us to lead us uh, to lead us to fear you to worship to instruct us to train us in all righteousness you've given it to us because it is all profitable Lord, I pray that you would be pleased to take the things that we've considered today and cause them to profit our souls. Use them to continue the transforming work in our lives that we would bring you glory as we look to, lean upon, and learn from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.